Now, in contemplating the healing of the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda, we see that the man was fully prepared for Christ's visitation, and so he was ready to be healed. He was fully aware of his need to be made whole, and after 38 years of longing to walk, of dragging around his crippled body, of fruitlessly seeking divine healing, he knew his true condition, that he was wretched. And that unless a miracle took place in his life, he knew he would die an eternal death. So he was ready for the day of Christ's visitation. And on that day, he obtained the healing that he had so longed for. The Jews, on the other hand, recognised their failings, but presumed on God's mercy to obtain his promises just as they were. They had confidence that their faith, their prayers, their good intentions, their good works, the keeping of the Sabbath, the knowledge of the truth, their church membership would offset their pride, their selfishness, their covetousness, their impatience, their indolence and intemperance. Accordingly, the day of visitation found them unready. They wanted to see themselves commended by the Messiah, not be made aware of their wretchedness. They wanted to be justified, not broken. They looked for a prince, not a man of sorrows. They wanted a crown, but not a cross. But before the crown must come the cross. They thought themselves fit to enter into the kingdom of heaven and found too late that it was too pure for them to enter into. Unrecognised and unappreciated, Jesus passed them by. They were unworthy of the kingdom of heaven. Are we looking for Christ's commendation? Or are we looking for him to make us aware of our wretchedness? The experience of the cripple is one that all must have who will enter into the kingdom of heaven. We read of the Apostle Paul, of whom we read that a crown of righteousness was laid up, yet he considered himself the chief of sinners, the one most in need of God's grace. We read of Enoch, that perfect man, that was so holy that God took him. Read about him in Patriarchs and Prophets 84. The closer the connection with God, the deeper was the sense of his own weakness and imperfection. Yet Enoch's faith waxed the stronger and his love became more ardent. The Christian life is not a path by which we think we approach heaven but one by which we become more and more aware of how far we really are from heaven. It is not a life of accumulating credits for heaven, but one of increasingly realising that we have no means, not by our belief, not by our desire, not by our works, not by anything, can we ever attain unto heaven. It is not a life of becoming holier than others, but of seeing how much worse we are than others. It's not a life of increasing awareness of our own righteousness, but of ever-deepening repentance. It is a life of learning by experience our desperate need for Christ to take possession of our lives. Steps to Christ, page 64, puts it like this. The closer you come to Christ, the more faulty you will appear in your own eyes. 
for your vision will be clearer and your imperfections will be seen in broad and distinct contrast to his perfect nature. If we do not see our own moral deformity, it is unmistakable evidence that we have not had a view of the beauty and excellence of Christ. What does that mean to you? The less we see to esteem in ourselves, the more we shall see to esteem in the infinite purity and loveliness of our Saviour. A view of our sinfulness drives us to Him who can pardon. And when the soul, realising its helplessness, reaches out after Christ, He will reveal Himself in power, as Christ revealed Himself in power to you. If not, why not? I think the answer is in that quote that we just read. Now this can only come about as we, like the cripple, repeatedly fail in our sincere attempts to walk in the Spirit. Would the cripple ever have been healed if he had been happy just to sit there alongside the rest of the congregation by the side of the pool without ever trying to walk? How many today are happy to sit in the congregation and never make an effort to walk in the Spirit? As Galatians 6.15 says, Walk ye in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfil the lust of the flesh. Do you fulfil the lusts of your flesh? Those who fulfil the lusts of the flesh never get to the point where they sin no more, How are such spiritual cripples ever to realise that they can never walk in the Spirit and need first to be made whole unless they try and fail? Only those who attempt to sin no more realise their inability to do so. Humbled, broken by our repeated failures, we turn in desperation away from self to Christ and constantly plead God's promise to make us whole. It is only our striving to walk in the Spirit that prepares our hearts to be healed. The worse that we see our condition, the more we recognise the need for Christ's indwelling, the more evidence we have that we are obtaining the experience that we need in order to be made whole. Are you seeking for and obtaining that contrition of soul, that distrust of self, that spiritual helplessness that leads you to desperately reach out after Christ? Only those that have this experience wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Galatians 5.5 And only they will be ready in the day of their visitation. Now some think that having realised their own spiritual wretchedness, having exercised faith and claimed the promise that they are ready to enter heaven and look over the day of Christ's visitation. The healing of the cripple teaches us that just recognising our own spiritual wretchedness and seeking to walk in spirit, while it's a requirement, is of no value unless Christ makes us whole on the day of our visitation. Those who remain crippled, maimed and blind after that day will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Some put afar off the day of the visitation, being complacent about their lusts and their sins thinking that in the meanwhile God's grace abounds. But those who make no effort to sin no more until they are certain they have been healed will never be healed. The cripple did not wait to feel that he had been made whole 
before taking to his feet. It was in the very act of obeying Christ that he was healed. God will not do anything for us that we are not willing to do for ourselves. Those who are lukewarm about their sins will not know the day of their visitation and will say to Christ on that day, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. And they will die in their sins because that season will never come. Others make a mistake of thinking that they are to go and sin no more through their own efforts. And failing to do this conclude that they must be too evil, too wicked to be saved. They forget that Christ did not expect the man to go and sin no more until after he had made him whole. It was just as possible for that man to walk before he was healed as it is for us to sin no more before we have been made whole. But having been made whole, Christ says to us, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Jesus did not say to this man, Sin less, or sin less often, but sin not at all. Those whom Christ has made whole are no longer slaves to sin, no longer slaves to the lusts of their flesh, to their habits and evil propensities. Christ can in all righteousness command them to go forth and sin no more because he has given them power to overcome every sin. He has given them the victory over self. And the same command that Christ has given to that cripple, he gives to all those who claim to know Christ. As we're told in 1 Corinthians 15.34, Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God, I speak this to your shame. 1 John 2.1-6 My little children, these things are right unto you that ye sin not. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth has not seen him, neither known him. Do you claim to know Christ, to have a relationship with him, and yet harbour pride, selfishness, impatience? What kind of relationship is that when you don't know him and not not even seen him? We may have heard about Jesus. We may read, talk or even sing about Jesus. But if we are still committing sin, it's because we don't really know him. We have never met him face to face. We have not been made whole. We are still unclean. We may even often talk at Jesus. I'm sure you've run into people who talk at you. We may talk at Jesus, but he will not hear us. Speaking of this, the Apostle James says in chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, Even so, faith, if it has not works, is dead being alone. Yea, man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. This is not talking about doing good works about how much we give to charity, about how large offerings we give to church, about how many long prayers we make, but about sin. He says, even so, faith, if it is bound together with sin, is dead. 
show me thy faith in your sins and I will show thee my faith by my victory over sin. Jesus did not say to the man, keep the law, but sin no more. He was talking about overcoming, not stealing, not murdering, not adultery. He was telling him about overcoming selfishness, covetousness, self-idolatry, evil speaking, impatience. There are many today, like the Jews in Jesus' day, who point to the keeping of the law while walking in the lust of their flesh and believe that they are doing God's will. It does not matter how perfectly you keep the law. If you are subject to the lust of the flesh that cripple the soul and drive away the Holy Spirit, you are no more righteous than the Pharisees were and are fittingly represented by the sick and dying multitudes by the side of the pool. As James says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Sinning no more is not optional for those who have been made whole. Just as faith cannot exist apart from repentance, Christ cannot dwell in the presence of sin. And John explains this a little bit further in 1 John chapter 3, verses 8 to 9. He says, He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God does not commit sin, but his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin. Cannot sin. Because he is born of God. Have you been born of God? Have you been made whole? If so, it is impossible for you to sin while Christ's word, while his spirit is in you. If you sin, it's because Christ's word, his spirit, does not dwell in you. Now if any man have not the spirit of Christ, what does the verse say? He is none of his. Jesus' command to go and sin no more is as much a part of the gospel as his command to repent and believe. The Apostle Paul puts it into perspective for us in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Therefore, leaving aside the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Leaving aside the principles of repentance and faith does not mean to dispose of them or to forget them. It means to lay them down as the foundation of the Christian life. Not to rest and stay in them and say, well, that's all I need, as if there was nothing more to do. Nor to be constantly falling away and needing to go back to repenting and confessing but to go on and build on that foundation, to build a living temple for the Holy Spirit. A temple in the same fashion and a perfection wherein can dwell the fullness of the Godhead. The same fashion as the temple of the Holy Spirit that Christ formed in himself. A temple not according to the flesh, but according to the divine nature. A temple holy, pure and undefiled. As Jesus says in Matthew 5.48, Be ye perfect, 
even as your Father in heaven is perfect. In the book that I may know him, page 130, it says, Our work is to strive to attain in our sphere of action the perfection that Christ in his life on earth attained in every phase of character. He is our example. In all things we are to strive to honour God in character. We are to be wholly dependent on the power that he has promised to give us. And in Christ's Object Lessons 3.15, God requires perfection of his children. His law is a transcript of his own character. The life of Christ on earth was a perfect expression of God's law. And when those who claim to be children of God become Christ-like in character, they will be obedient to God's commandments. Then the Lord can trust them to be of the number he shall compose the family in heaven. The desire of ages, page 664, Jesus revealed no qualities and exercised no powers that men may not have through faith in him. His perfect humanity is that which all his followers may possess if they will be in subjection to God as he was. Selected Messages, volume 2, page 381. God requires now what he required of Adam. Perfect obedience, righteousness without a flaw, without shortcomings in his sight. God, help us to render him all that his law requires. We cannot do this without that faith that brings Christ's righteousness into daily practice. Bible Commentary, Volume 6, 1118. Those only who through faith in Christ obey all of God's commandments will reach the condition of sinlessness in which Adam lived before his transgression. Ministry of Healing, page 180. Christ came to make us partakers of the divine nature and his life declares that humanity combined with divinity does not commit sin. Messages to young people, 144. He who enters heaven must have a character that is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Nor that defileth can ever enter there. In all the redeemed host, not one defect will be seen. The last quote, Acts of the Apostle 565. We are not yet perfect, but it is our privilege to cut away from the entanglements of self and sin and advance to perfection. Great possibilities, high and holy attainments are placed within the reach of all. Those that have been made whole are no longer to continue as they were sitting by the pool lamenting what they cannot do, observing the times and protocols for the moving of the water. But standing up in Christ, they are to walk in the Spirit and go on to perfection. They are no longer to be subject to the infirmities of their bodies, but keep their bodies in subjection to Christ's command. As Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9.27, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means, when I have preached to others, 
I myself should be cast away. Paul here is talking about the lusts of his flesh, his natural tendencies, his evil habits, his wayward thoughts, his misplaced affections. They must all be brought into subjection if we are to sin no more. Paul continues in Romans 8.13 saying, For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And many make a mistake thinking that they are to mortify their bodies, that they are to deny themselves sleep, or to go on unhealthy fasts, or to put stones in their shoes, or to whip themselves. But that is not what Paul is talking about. It's not saying mortify your body, but the deeds of the body. What are the deeds of the body? Well, Paul also explains that in Colossians 3.5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It is the evil elements of our characters. Lust, covetousness, idolatry, pride, selfishness, that are to be mortified. That is, they are to be cut off, to be starved, to be put to death. The question is, how is this to be done? Through my own self-will and efforts? My own self-control? No. It can only be done through the Spirit. Only by submitting to the promptings of and power of the Spirit. This is why only those who have been made whole and who walk in the Spirit can overcome the lusts of the flesh. Steps of Christ, page 63, tells us Jesus teaches the same thing when he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can ye, except ye abide in me. Without me ye can do nothing. You are just as dependent upon Christ in order to live a holy life as is the branch upon the parent stock for growth and fruitfulness. Apart from him, you have no life. You have no power to resist temptation or to grow in grace and holiness. Many have an idea that they must do some part of this work alone. They have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, but now they seek by their own efforts to live aright. But every such effort must fail. Jesus says, without me you can do nothing. Our growth in grace, our joy, our usefulness all depend on our union with Christ. It is by communion with him daily, hourly, by abiding in him that we can, are to grow in grace. He is not only the author but the finisher of our faith. If it is Christ first and last and always, he is to be with us not only at the beginning and the end of the course but at every step of the way. Do you ask, how am I to abide in Christ? In the same way as you received him at first. As you have therefore received Jesus Christ the Lord, so walk ye in him, and the just shall live by faith. You gave yourself to God to be his holy, to serve and obey him, and you took Christ as your saviour. You could not yourself atone for your sin or change your heart, but having given yourself to God, you believe that he for Christ's sake did all this for you. By faith you become Christ and by faith you are to grow up in him. By giving and taking, you are to give all. Your heart, your will, your service. Give yourself to him to obey all his requirements. 
And you must take all, Christ, the fullness of all blessing, to abide in your heart, to be your strength, your righteousness, your everlasting helper, to give you power to obey. If having been healed, sin remains in the soul temple of God, Christ cannot dwell in it. And it is good for nothing but to be cast into the fire. Having been healed, it is our duty to sin no more. Jesus said on one occasion to his disciples in Matthew 12, 43-45, When an unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he says, I will return into my house from where I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty and swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. There are many examples in the scripture of those who having once been healed did not think that God was particular about his command to go and sin no more and were not careful to do so. We have the example of Ananias and Sapphira who after God had visited his disciples with the outpouring of the Holy Ghost at Pentecost they thought that while they were doing a good work that they could indulge their covetousness a little and lie to the disciples. And they were immediately struck dead and great fear fell upon the churches as they realised that God is particular about what he says. Why were they instantly struck down but not say Simon Magus who also accepted believed the gospel and was baptised. They had received the Holy Ghost, but Simon Magus had not. Simon Magus had accepted the promise, but had not been healed. The greater the knowledge of the truth, the greater the accountability. Why was there no sacrifice for Ananias and Sapphira, but there was a sacrifice for Peter who lied three times in his denial of Christ? Peter had not been converted. He had been a disciple of Christ for three years. He'd accepted the promise, but he hadn't obtained the promise. He had not been made whole. He was still in bondage to self. He had accepted the promise of the kingdom and had spoke much about it. He had told others about it. But he himself did not understand it and hence had not obtained it. Peter was not walking in the spirit. He was still a slave to sin. Paul explains this matter a little bit in Hebrews 6, 46. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again unto repentance seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. A lot of people don't understand this verse. But I want to suggest to you, can you see why Christ does not heal every careless, crippled soul that sits in the church pew straight away? 
If he were to heal those who only half-heartedly desired healing, and they chose to return to their crippled condition, what more could God possibly do for them? He's given them everything he has, and they have considered it of no great importance. They haven't cherished it. Having received and despised the power of God to walk in the Spirit and sin no more, and having willingly returned to indulge in the lusts of their flesh, what more can God do for them? Paul says in Hebrews 10.26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. This is why those who have been healed are commanded to sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon them. Now, remember again that the cripple was not healed when he accepted the promise of healing, but only 38 years later, when Christ visited him, that he was set free from sin and then able to sin no more. This verse we've just read in Hebrews 10.6 tells us that after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice to sin. But the original Greek doesn't say it exactly like that. It says that after we have gotten hold of the full discernment of the truth, not just a partial knowledge or a little bit of knowledge, but a full discernment of the truth. When somebody promises to give you a gift, I'm going to give you a car for your birthday. And you accept the promise, you have not gotten hold of it. Neither do you fully discern what it is, what it will be. You know a little bit about it, but you don't know all of its features. It's like seeing through a glass darkly. You can see, but not clearly. There are many today who have received the knowledge of the truth, but they see through a glass darkly. When we understand the truth, not according to the wisdom of men, not according to our own wisdom, not according to the wisdom of ministers and teachers, but according to the power of the Spirit, only then can we go and sin no more. Accepting the promise of God is not the same as getting hold of it, nor can we have full discernment of it until we do so. God holds less accountable those that sin having some knowledge of the truth but do not fully understand it. But when we have obtained the promise, when we are made whole, then we have full discernment of the truth and of the power of God. And then, if we choose to sin, there remains no more sacrifice. Neither is there a sacrifice for those who having tasted a little of the truth willingly choose to remain ignorant of it. God has given us a mind. He has given us his word and his Holy Spirit by which we can come to an understanding of the truth that we might be partakers of his divine nature and go and sin no more. It is because of God's long-suffering that he has not yet visited us. It is because of his mercy that we have not been made whole. For 38 years, that man, in God's mercy, was not made whole. Think of that. How many of us still cherish sins of intemperance, of pride and selfishness, of covetousness, self-idolatry? 
We are simply not ready to receive the promise. If Christ were to give you the power of the Holy Spirit today, can you be sure that you would not be destroyed in an instant like Ananias and Sapphira? Now God has given his people many warnings about how particular he is when he tells us to go and sin no more. In 1 Kings chapter 13 we have a story. And I'd like you to follow along because it, I'm going to read most of it. 1 Kings chapter 13. And behold there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel. And Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus saith the Lord. Behold, a child shall be born in the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon thee shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon thee. And men's bones shall be burnt upon thee. And he gave it a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord hath spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. And it came to pass, when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which had cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar, saying, Lay hold on him. And his hand which he put forth against him dried up, so that he could not pull it in again to him. The altar also was rent, and the ashes poured out from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Now having delivered his message, the man of God was about to return home. So we'll go to verse 7, uh, 7 to 10. And the king said unto the man of God, Come home with me and refresh thyself, and I will give thee a reward. And the man of God said unto the king, If thou wilt give me half thine house, I will not go in with thee, neither will I eat bread nor drink water in this place. For so was it charged me by the word of the Lord, saying, Eat no bread, nor drink water, nor turn again by the same way that thou camest. So he went another way and returned not by the way he came to Bethel. So far this man of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, clearly obeyed the word of the Lord. And we'll continue reading now from verse 11. Now there dwelt an old prophet in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel, the words which he had spoken unto the king, and they told them also to their father. And their father said unto them, Which way went he? For the, his sons had seen which way the man of God went, which came from Judah. And he said unto his sons, Saddle up, saddle me the ass. So they saddled him the ass, and he rode thereon, and went after the man of God, and found him sitting under an oak. And he said unto him, Art thou the man of God that camest from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said unto him, Come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with thee, nor go with thee, neither will I eat bread, nor drink water with thee in this place. And verse 18. And he said unto him, I am a prophet also as thou art. And an angel spake unto me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with thee to thine house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. Again and again this lie was repeated. And the invitation urged until the man of God was persuaded to return. In verse 19 we pick up the rest of the story. So he went back with him and did eat bread in his house and drink water. And it came to pass as they sat in the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet that brought him back. 
And he cried unto the man of God that came from Judah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, For as much as thou hast disobeyed the mouth of the Lord, and hast not kept the commandment which the Lord thy God commanded unto thee, but camest back and hast eaten bread and drunk water in this place, of which the Lord did say unto thee, Eat no bread and drink no water, thy carcass shall not come unto the sepulchres of thy fathers. And it came to pass, after he had eaten bread and after he had drunk, that he saddled for him the ass to whip, for the prophet whom he had brought back. And when he was gone, a lion met him by the way and slew him, and his carcass was cast in the way, and the ass stood by. The lion also stood by the carcass. God had warned this prophet, the true prophet, not to return. God did not tell him why, but allowing himself to be deceived into breaking God's commandment, God could no longer protect him. And he fell into Satan's hand to suffer the penalty for his transgression. The false prophet was no more a prophet of God than was the witch of Endor, who after Saul had similarly forfeited God's protection by going to her, prophesied to him that he and his sons would be killed. That false prophet was like many self-appointed teachers today. That we read of them in Jeremiah 23:14. I've seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of the evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness or from his sin. Isaiah 9:16. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and they that are led of them are destroyed. Isaiah 31. Woe unto the rebellious children. They take counsel, but not of me, that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. The lesson in this story is that he was a man that at one time was in bondage to the infirmities of his flesh. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But who must have come to repentance and was visited one day by God, who made him whole and sent him to walk in the power of the Spirit, endued with the word and power of God, with a message of warning to Jeroboam. This man was at first particular to sin no more, but was eventually persuaded that a little deviation from God's word was not sin. And having been once enlightened, and having tasted of the heavenly gift, and having been made a partaker of the Holy Ghost, and having tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come found that there remained no more sacrifice for him. Christ's warning to the man at Beth says, Doth sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee, was fulfilled in the case of this prophet. He may have been deceived into sin, but it was still his choice to disobey. There are other examples of Christ's warning. You know, God had by his outstretched arm and mighty power delivered Israel from Egypt and led them through the Red Sea. Yet, having been set free from bondage, having been made whole, they longed to return to their slavery and refused to enter Canaan. God could do no more for that people that had been enlightened by his righteousness, that had tasted the heavenly manna, that had been made partakers of God's Spirit. They had heard the word of God with their own ears and had witnessed his power with their own eyes. By God's direction, the keeping of the Passover was henceforth discontinued and the rite of circumcision was suspended. He refused to recognise them as his people. 
there remained no more sacrifice for them and every single one of them above the age of 20 died in the wilderness Christ's warning to the man of Bethesda sin no more lest the worst thing come upon thee was fulfilled to them as well yet the story of Israel as we know doesn't end there just as the cripple at Bethesda had laid impotent thinking that he was cursed waiting for 38 years while slowly dying and unable to get to the promised healing to get to the waters so too did the children of Israel wander aimlessly in the wilderness slowly dying unable to cross the waters of the Jordan into the promised land knowing that the hand of the Lord was against them until all that generation was consumed there they waited for 38 years until one day the Lord visited them and healed their backsliding God then commanded them to stand to take up their tents and walk across Jordan into Canaan they obtained the promise that they had so long waited for they were made whole the observance of the Passover and the rite of circumcision was reinstituted now the Lord commanded them to go and sin no more he said Joshua 6 18 keep yourselves from the accursed thing lest you make yourselves a curse when you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it and the Lord sent them to walk in the spirit around Jericho seven days and by his word they obtained the victory now unfortunately one man in the entire host of Israel thought God was not particular about his command to sin no more Joshua 7 1 but the children of Israel committed trespass in the accursed thing for Achan the son of Kami the son of Zabdi the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took of the accursed thing and the anger of the Lord was kindled against the children of Israel and verse 12 therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies but turned their backs before the enemies because they were accursed neither will I be with you anymore except you destroy the cursed thing among you Achan's sin was committed in defiance of the most direct and solemn warnings and the most mighty manifestations of God's power. Yet he thought that God would somehow not be particular and strictly mark his iniquity. His sin was well concealed. It affected no one but himself. It was a secret sin. And it was such a small thing in contrast to the good that he had done in God's service that he felt that God would overlook it God would forgive him his mercy and his love would suffice it was in many regards similar to that of Ananias and Sapphira like them he was surprised that his sin was found out Jesus said sin no more lest the worst thing come upon thee Achan and his household was put to death he also found that there remained no more sacrifice for his sin. And though he sought for repentance with weeping and tears, he could not find it. God's tolerance for sin is zero. 
In angrily striking the rock twice, Moses also sinned. Now it was not a willful sin, and God accepted his repentance, yet he was still prohibited from entering the promised land and also died in the wilderness because of this one unintentional sin. In his mercy, God bears long with sinners, for the day is coming when his grace will no more be extended. When there will be no more room for repentance, when we will stand before a holy God without a mediator, when God will no more hear the sinner's prayer, a day when Christ will take off his garments of intercession and put on his garments of vengeance. When we read in Revelation 22.11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. That day came to those who claimed to keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Abraham. And they were spewed out of his mouth. They ignored the warning of John the Baptist, thinking it would never happen. See, John had declared to them that God would lay the axe to the root of the tree and that every tree that continued in sin would be cut down and cast in the fire. Think not, think not within yourself, he said, that we are members of God's remnant church. For I say unto you that God is able to raise up strangers who will take your place and who will sin no more. While a sacrifice for sin remains, bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. God is dependent upon Seventh-day Adventists to fulfil his purposes as much as he was dependent upon Israel. He can carry forward his work in purity and righteousness by other means if he needs to. God's work on the earth will not be finished by spiritual cripples that are slaves to self, to their love of worldly things, to their evil habits, to their indulgence in sin. It will be finished by those who walk in the spirit and do no longer fulfil the lust of their flesh, by those who have obtained righteousness by faith and sin no more. Those who, as David tells us in Psalms 119, are the undefiled in the way who walk in the way of the Lord, that keep his testimonies and seek him with all heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. And Zephaniah 3.13 says, Those who shall do no iniquity nor speak lies, neither shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. But victory over sin can only be attained by first gaining the victory over ourselves. In Sketches of the Life of Paul, page 63, it says, Genuine religion gives men the victory over themselves. Those who are spiritually crippled cannot obtain the victory. It is impossible to force oneself to overcome sin. The victory over self and sin is a gift from God and can only be obtained through repentance and in faith pleading with him for the gift. That gift does not come in an instant, but will be granted in a day when ye think not to those who patiently and perseveringly seek for it. In that day, only those who are ready, who have prepared their hearts and minds, will obtain it. Enoch is a representative of those who have become sin in this life. 
and will be redeemed from among men at the Lord's second coming. The sinless and holy character of Enoch is what all must have who will be translated to heaven without seeing death. Patriarchs and Prophets says Enoch resisted Satan's every artifice and stood forth as a noble representative of what it was in the power of man to do and be, while Christ should cooperate with human efforts to help man in overcoming the power of Satan. Enoch and Elijah are the correct representatives of what the race might be through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan was greatly disturbed because these noble, holy men were untainted amid the moral pollution surrounding them, perfecting righteous characters and accounted worthy for translation to heaven. As they had stood forth in moral power, in noble uprightness, overcoming Satan's temptations, he could not bring them under the dominion of death. He triumphed, that he had power to overcome Moses with his temptations, that he could mar his illustrious character and lead him to the sin of taking to himself glory before the people which belonged to God. Enoch did not wait until he had entered heaven to sin no more. He brought the holiness of heaven into his daily life. This is how he walked with God and why God took him to be with him forevermore. As Enoch did, God commands us to go and sin no more. We read in Testimonies, volume 1, page 340, Jesus sits as a refiner and purifier of his people and when his image is perfectly reflected in them, they are perfect and holy and prepared for translation. A great work is required of the Christian. We are exhorted to cleanse ourselves from all the filthiness of this flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Here we see where the great labour rests. There is a constant work for the Christian. Christ's Object Lesson 332, Be ambitious for the Master's glory. To cultivate every grace of character, in every phase of your character building you are to please God. This you may do, for Enoch pleased God through living in a degenerate age. And there are Enochs in this our day. Are you an Enoch? Is your sense of your own weakness? Remember that quote that we read right at the beginning about Enoch? Is your sense of your own weakness and imperfection ever growing deeper? And your faith waxing stronger? This is what it means to walk in the Spirit. This is how Enoch walked with God. If you sense your own weakness and imperfection is not growing, then you can be sure that you are still a spiritual cripple. Your amount of faith is in direct proportion to the sense of your own weakness and imperfection. The stronger and more righteous you see yourself, the less you need of Christ, the less you will seek him, the less you will depend upon his grace. Jesus declared in Luke 18, 8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. He shall find lots Millions and millions who believe in God. He will find lots and lots of presumption thinking they'll be saved. He will find many who are lukewarm. Many who are blind and poor and naked while thinking their names are written in the book of life. But will the Son of Man in his day of visitation actually find faith on the earth?
For will he find those who for years have longed to sin no more, who recognise their weakness, who cling to God's promise and wait for the hope of the righteousness by faith? Will he find those who are preparing their bodies and hearts and minds to receive him and be made whole? You know, Enoch declared in Jude 14, 15, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And we like to compare ourselves to the ungodly deeds of ungodly sinners. Not unlike the Jews who like to compare their keeping of the law to the idolatry of the heathen. Feeling more righteous than the heathen, they thought that it was their God-appointed good work to turn the heathen away from their idolatry and turn them to keeping the law of God. Sadly, the Jews, with all their boasted keeping of the law, along with all their Gentile converts, perished in the destruction of Jerusalem. How different are we? We like to compare our keeping of the Sabbath day to that of Sunday idolaters. Feeling more righteous than they, we think it is our God-appointed work to turn those in the world away from idolising Sunday to keep the Sabbath. We like to proclaim the third angel's message. And a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead, on his hand the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth for ever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image. And whosoever receives the mark of his name, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Who is it that shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God? Is it just Sunday keepers, those who break the fourth commandment? Or is it those who break any of the commandments of God? What about those who keep the whole law according to the deadness of the letter, but not according to the spirit? The Jews teach us that it is quite possible to keep the Sabbath day and yet be in bondage to sin. What many have failed to understand is that the third angel's message is not a warning against Sunday keepers to stop keeping Sunday and to keep Saturday, but against all who have not been made whole and continue in sin. The message of the third angel is Jesus' call to us to go and sin no more. It is the message of righteousness by faith. As you read in the Review and Herald, January 8, 1900, and thus the beginning words and the closing words and all between of the third angel's message as it pertains to the saints is summed up with the three words, righteousness by faith. Thus, Justification by faith is the third angel's message. The preaching of righteousness by faith is the preaching of the third angel. The third angel's message is therefore a warning at all those, whether they keep Sabbath or not, 
who remain spiritually crippled and who do not, through repentance and faith, obtain the victory over their sins, will in their day of visitation receive the mark of the beast. How many who have faithfully given the third angel's message would be like that prophet who, having faithfully warned Jeroboam, was eventually deceived into disobeying the word of the Lord and it was destroyed by the roaring lion who goes about seeking to devour them. Let us seek with all our might to be made whole that we might go and sin no more.